the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Many of you out there perhaps are uh, part-time gardeners or like to... uh, What's the word? Not tweak. I'm trying to think. What is it? What is the proper, appropriate term here, Jarrell? You 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 love to meddle around in the garden. <laughs> uh, your spouse might say occasionally killing plants. Uh, certainly, that's uh, that's one of my uh, badges that I wear none too proudly. But uh, you know, then again, you might have some luck and success once in a while. You certainly know that there are times and seasons when older plants, more mature plants. Uh, begin facing some growth challenges. Uh, seemingly, no matter how much water you feed them or how oftentimes you uh, turn them to make sure they're facing the light, uh, their leaves begin to get yellowed. Uh, the edges perhaps begin to, to grow brown. There is a lot less new growth, and the older growth, quite frankly, is looking dingy, tired, and worn out. So what do you do? Is there a way in which you can revitalize and bring new life to that plant and hope that it will um, somehow carry on further? Well, one of the big methods is plants like that oftentimes become uh, root-bound, particularly when they're potted plants. And so it requires going in, uh, removing the potting uh, around them, uh, trimming the root, which sometimes can be a painful process, and then, of course, replanting that plant in new soil, fresh fertilizer, lots of water, lots of sun light and the vast majority of times in fact that replanting process as a time consuming and perhaps painful as it might be in shock to the plant initially so can be the long-term solution to giving that plant a new lease on life let's think of that same analogy when it comes to churches and church planting does it sound familiar a congregation that's been around for many many years many generations and at the edges is starting to look sort of drab and dreary and tired there is no new growth and so oftentimes the decision comes gee is it time to just put that plant out of its or that church out of its misery or are there things that we can do to replant that church in a similar fashion the way we do a replanting of a plant a house plant to give it a new lease on life well my next guest tonight i think would suggest the answer is absolutely so he is a gardener of sorts a missionary uh, author and um, professor at uh, Beeson divinity school in birmingham alabama he spent uh, years in bangkok thailand and um, works as a, a church uh, advisor in many respects helping 
helping churches discover how a dying congregation can grow once again. The book is called Replant, How a Dying Church Can Grow Again. Dr. Mark Devine, great to have you on the program tonight. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. This is a, this is a painful process, isn't it? Uh, number one, I think oftentimes painful for congregations to admit uh, that they are, in fact, uh, facing a very uncertain future. It really can be, and um, uh, I really didn't set out to become sort of a, you know, a church a consultant or a fixer, but... Uh, once I became a professor and could no longer serve as full-time pastor, I found myself really not knowing what to do with myself, and so I ended up becoming uh, an, in, uh, a serial interim pastor for churches that are without a pastor. And then after the first couple of those, I really found myself in a new, uh, exciting ministry uh, with a growing mission field because 80% of churches in North America are declining. And I really found myself um, really looking at these churches very differently than it is just a way station for the next pastor, but trying to think, well, wait a minute, this church has been declining for so long, they've had one pastor after another, is there something I can do in my unique position, since I don't want to stay permanently, that might help this congregation grow again? And I haven't always been successful, but it's really been exciting uh, to try to help in these ways. You speak throughout the book of your experiences, specifically at um, the Calvary Baptist Church. Let's talk a bit about that. Uh, this is a church that you describe as having been in its third decade of decline, and, and certainly one of the big indicators that there was lots of trouble afoot. It went through the totality of eight pastors, four permanent, four interim, in just 10 years. That, that's, what, like a year and a half or so per pastor? That certainly doesn't bode well in terms of the healthiness of that church or <laughs> the very least the stick to it uh, of those called the lead. I'm told that the average pastorate now, tenure of a, of a pastor in churches today in North America, hovers around two years. That's hard to believe. But um, it really is an indication of sort of the the, the, the pathology, the lack of vision, uh, and the difficulties. And what happens oftentimes in these churches is that after the first two or three pastors uh, stay a very short time and leave, um, the, the congregation itself lapses into a pattern of behavior that prevents it from being led. Inevitably, uh, highly motivated laypersons, often very well-meaning, begin to occupy leadership turf that really belongs to a pastor. And these congregations become, without even realizing it, virtually unleadable. And so for all the good intentions that many might have and the pockets of ministry that often exist in these churches, they've rendered themselves uh, resistant to any real visionary uh, strong pastoral leadership, and usually until that uh, is changed, it usually is. Most of these churches never come back. Well, in, in, in all fairness, uh, Doctor Devine, you you speak in the book of of the fact that there had been individuals that were in these positions, and I would imagine to the greatest degree, many of them 
um, out of necessity. When we look at that high degree of turnover, I mean, suddenly from transitioning from one past to another, there are areas of need and care within uh, the greater life and body of the church and pastoral ministry that need time and need attention. And so uh, it would seem like a lot of these folks might have stepped into those positions, uh, probably of, of good heart and will. But then uh, what are you suggesting? Something happens along the way where they they kind of uh, dig their heels in and suddenly it, it moves from here's a, a deacon so-and-so or sister such-and-such so God bless her is willing to step in while we're in the middle of a, a crisis here. Pastor's left. We've got an intern pastor's trying to get the lay of the land and so they're willing to come in and help out and then what? It turns into uh, suddenly from um, good-hearted ministry to taking advantage of personal perks and privileges? A lot of the decisions that a pastor might make or lead the congregation to make end up being made by powerful lay people, and they get used to doing that, and they like to do it. And once a congregation sees pastors come and go quickly a few times, they they are slow to treat the next pastor as though he will be around for, for very long. And therefore, his ability to gain their trust and lead is uh, is greatly diminished. And then if a pastor comes in who's bound and determined to leave, then he faces resistance with entrenched sort of turf, uh, uh, turf battles where various people have staked out some turf that uh, they see as theirs and they're protective of it, but as long as the pastor can't lead... Uh, you know, if he, if he can't have influence on that turf, then he really can't lead the congregation, and these pastors eventually give up and, and they go. If you've just joined the conversation, we're talking about a lot of the principles that gardeners use in bringing new life to a dying plant by replanting it. We're all familiar with the concept of church planting. What about the concept of church replanting? Some lessons on how a dying church can grow again. Dr. Mark Devine with us tonight. Maybe your church is going through some of this. Maybe you have individuals in your church that, as Dr. Devine suggests, have stepped in to help out during difficult times and suddenly now are intentionally or otherwise engaged in making decisions and taking on areas of authority, quite frankly, biblically, belong to the pastor, but out of emergency or short-term necessity, they have taken. And suddenly now it's gone from, let me step in to help out, to essentially a usurping of position, authority, and spiritual responsibility that ultimately does not bode well for the life of that church. If you're in that kind of circumstance, you may want to just simply eavesdrop on our conversation. Maybe you want to dive a little bit deeper, and uh, I can understand not wanting to get out on the radio and uh, reveal your name or the church that you're involved with, but time out. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Dr. Mark Devine with us tonight. A look at Replant, How a Dying Church Can Grow Again. He had such an experience. You had served as a missionary in, in Thailand. At what point and how? what was the process, uh, Dr. Devine, where they, they called you to uh, First Calvary? And when you got there, what kind of a shape did you find the place in? Well, I was just available uh, to serve as a supply preacher for churches that did not have a pastor or an interim pastor. 
and uh, there were people who knew that I had helped a troubling church, and they recommended me to this congregation. And I had a meeting with two of the leading lay uh, leaders there, and they they talked a really strong game of we need leadership. They were they were down to around oh 150 or so in a sanctuary, beautiful sanctuary that would seat 600. It looked like a little Spurgeon's Tabernacle, plunked down in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, but once I got in there, I realized that, that this church was virtually unleadable. And so they talked about leadership, but really they, they lapsed into a state where they really uh, treated pastors as an employee with discreet duties. You know, preach a sermon, uh, do the wedding, do the funeral, do some pastoral care. But really, leadership was not on the cards at all. And I began to think about that, pray about that, and dream about, was there, is there a way that this congregation uh, could reverse its decline and start to reach people for Christ in that neighborhood again? In your book, you refer to them as members of the, the lay cartel, which I thought was brilliant. Uh, there is the sense of, of really sabotaging pastoral leadership because they've essentially usurped pastoral responsibility and authority. And we hear this every once in a while, particularly seems to be uh, an excuse or pretext by so-called megachurches where we wish to have a, uh, there's an administrative pastor, there's a pastoral pastor, there's the preaching pastor, uh, and, and we've divided the duties up so much so that it doesn't at the end of the day seem to be one individual that is accountable to God or, or responsible for anything, and then all this little laity running around as if they're controlling a, a, a small corporation or miniature fiefdom. And one of the, the developments that you see in many of these uh, these historic churches that are in decline is that um, they will uh, resist on the basis, the stated basis, that they are protecting a great tradition. And that was one of the means by which they thwarted attempts to lead at First Calvary. But one of the most paradoxical and surprising things that happened uh, in Kansas City at this church is that I began to study the history of the church. I found that they had taken radical dis- decisions many times that were risky, that, that required a lot of faith, that, had res- that were made in order to make the changes needed to advance the gospel. And so when I came to them with the, you know, the notion that we might consider joining with another congregation that had demonstrated uh, leadership and effectiveness in a cultural context just like ours, and that they would provide the leadership, uh, I was able to take their history and say, if we face this opportunity According to our tradition, we will be open to significant change, and it kind of turned the tables on the you know the self-appointed protectors of the tradition at that church. 
And, you know, I don't wish to, I want to get in trouble here with listeners and, and seem to come off as if I, I have utter disregard for tradition or uh, a sense of uh, spiritual legacy or history. But at the end of the day, as we, as we measure it purely by the yardstick of Scripture, I mean, uh, am I wrong in saying that when we kind of distill it all down, it comes to a couple of basic uh, principles here, um, certainly the Great Commission, the Great Commandment, discipleship, evangelism. I mean, that, that's kind of the, uh, the primary role of the church, and all of that seems to be very forward-looking. I, I, I know that the Lord certainly is appreciative if a church has had a history of, uh, you know, having great men preaching in pulpits, and many have been run one to Christ down through the decades or the centuries, but uh, why do I have a lingering sense of sort of a, um, okay, and so what have you done for me lately as part of, of the way <laughs> the Lord himself might uh, might judge a church like that. Well, the irony here was that I led the church to look forward by looking back, just like you did. You reached backward to the Bible to to talk about what churches should do now. And that's what I did with this congregation. They had had a tradition of doing some really risky uh, but but doctrinally sound, faith-infused things in their past. And so the people who were who were touting themselves as the protectors of the tradition really weren't protecting the tradition. They were protecting recent uh, turf that they had occupied and the way decisions had been made over the last 20 years. But when you look at what had been happening over the last century, then that was a different kind of tradition. And you could find there many times in the church's history where they had made discipleship and evangelism and care for those who are hurting front and center. And so it wasn't a matter of don't look back, just look forward. There's like one passage in the Bible that says that, and people uh, gloss over the hundreds of passages where God says, remember, don't forget, remember, don't forget. And so the problem was not that they were looking back and remembering, but they weren't looking back far enough, deep enough, they weren't remembering the right things, and then facing the present and the future on the basis of the best of their past. There's a pastor right now in Chicago who's helping restart churches the way I did. And one of the things he says that I love is that when we restart churches, we don't erase their history. We have a shared history. But if that history is rooted in gospel advance, then they will not dig in and become a dysfunctional church that resists leadership. Well, and again, I, I have no objection to, to history. In fact, I'm a, a tremendous fan of it, and I believe standing on a, a, a tradition and a, a, a sense of uh, uh, connectedness, if you will, uh, down through the generations, I think that's wonderful and to be applauded and and to be stood upon. But you stand on that foundation and that rich history that should then drive you and compare 
how you to move forward, not to become paralyzed in simply saying, gee, look how great we used to be, uh, that that never allows you to then have that forward-looking sense in terms of, you know, our, our, our relationship with Christ is one that continues to grow and expand. Uh, so, too, ought that process of outreach and evangelism and discipleship, as we mentioned. And so that sitting of the history and allowing ourselves to become paralyzed where we're just stuck in it, isn't that largely what a lot of these churches wind up dying from? That's exactly what they die from. And uh, so that, and that is what I talked to them about. But now what I didn't tell them is that they're dying because they care about the tradition. Actually, what I did was expand their view of tradition, which then shamed them when they uh, didn't put the advance of the gospel first. And so I kind of uh, claim the tradition ground rather than ceding it to those who, were, who had a selective view of it. And to the newer congregations, even if they're growing, let's say a new uh, church, uh, new leadership comes in and the church starts to grow, if they treat the past with uh, a case or sarah or just something that's you know good for historical, you know, trivial pursuit, then they end up with a with a maybe a, a temporary you know temporary life and and growth. But it ends up being very, very shallow because they don't, they don't, they don't really grasp what they've been bequeathed uh, uh, from the past. And so I think there's a message about the past that both sides tend to be getting wrong. Mm. Uh, and uh, and the, the the biggest light that shines on that is that some of those who want to be sort of fiercely forward-looking. They keep turning back to uh, the reformers, turning back to the to the Bible, and I want to say, okay, now you're now you're talking my language. So we have to be cautious in finding that balance because some are oftentimes um, uh, too reticent to to move or look forward, and they wish to just singularly cling to the past. And others are too rapid or in rush to to dispense with the past in the process of moving forward. And there's something to be said about the mixture of the two. Let's take a time out on that point. Dr. Mark Devine is with us. We are talking about church replanting. What that means, what that looks like, what that might mean to you and your congregation. Stay with us. We'll time out, update on traffic, then back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to the conversation with Dr. Mark Devine. Let's get into some of your calls. We're talking about church replanting. We'll head off first to Hayward. Paul, good afternoon. Welcome. You're on KFAX with Dr. Mark Devine. Uh, good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. I've been um, checking out a lot of churches. I grew up in the Bay Area, grew up in a real large church, and have been looking around uh, and visiting churches for the last 10 years or so. And I'm seeing one thing that's common in because they are declining. And I'm asking you, uh, Pastor, if if you see this. uh, One of the churches that I I attend regularly, has about 1,200 people going there. And on one Sunday, the pastor asked by a raise of hands of, how many people in 2013 had led anybody to the Lord? Less than 12 hands went up out of over 400 people. So what I'm starting to understand with this is that uh, people are going to uh, churches if they are, you know, out of duty. They're getting jobs. They're 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 uh, uh, 
sacred cow ministries that they occupy for 25 years and won't let anybody in and and they're not learning to evangelize and so this church that I've been attending now for nearly three years uh, I haven't been invited to one person's house yet uh, or out to lunch Um, they had the glad handing thing and and the you know shaking the hands get up and shake your neighbor's hands all that stuff but but they're not teaching what Paul said about um, uh, the gift of hospitality Hmm. And the gift of hospitality, I think, is what's missing in the churches, because if a pastor does leave a church all of a sudden, you know, for whatever reason, he dies, you know, whatever reason, the church should be able to maintain itself because the people have already learned how to really be a family, as well as be a family to their, their neighbors and their co-workers. In most cases, most neighbors don't even know a Christian lives next door. They've not. They've not. They're not being taught hospitality. So, what what do you see? Do you see that as being something? Wow! Some really good observations. What about that, Doctor Devine? I want to tout a, a church in Columbus, Ohio, uh, related to this issue. It's called Xenos, and my uh, uh, youngest son is a is a he's a student in in Columbus, and he's a member of that church. And they, for many years, have made discipleship uh, the heart and center of what they want to be about. They don't want anything to distract them from it. And it's a remarkable thing. And so they're they're most strong in the ways that, that this church that you've spoken of uh, is weak. And I will say this. The trend is that nominal Christianity is going to weaken. And and the church is is losing market share, but the churches that survive uh, and thrive in this new environment are going to be stronger uh, because people are not going to use their time to be involved in in churches uh, that are not really meaningful and relevant to them. But I certainly believe that one of the great weaknesses is just what you've spoken about, and that is... Can, can disciples make other disciples? Well, therein goes a real important key, because whether you talk about a church learning what hospitality is or or the keys to evangelism, I mean, doesn't this really come down to the matter of, of a lack of real, proper discipleship? I mean, how many people show up to church every Sunday and they're kind of there out of, out of duty or out of habit or a sense of obligation, and yet they, they don't know a lot about the Savior that they allege to serve? and have never had the experience of ever sharing their faith with anyone. Absolutely, but I do think that kind of thing is peaking because fewer and fewer people are willing to do that anymore. And so uh, people who are in that state, they they are dropping out of church uh, in, in droves. I'm finding some really exciting things happening with pastors who are in their 40s uh, that I, you know, were my students uh, 20 years ago, and uh, they're they're planting and building churches that are really a great co- contrast in these in these areas. And I'm so I'm really quite hopeful uh, that we're going to see uh, we're, we're going to see stronger churches uh, in these areas in the future. You are you getting a sense that the emphasis on and I'm going to meddle here for a moment. Uh, one of the things that I'm pretty good at. <laughs> uh, there's been such an emphasis 
on so-called church growth seminars, seeker-sensitive churches. It seems as if we have to have a plan and formula, most of which comes down to simply good entertainment, or not so good, uh, as a means of increasing the size of our church, which a lot of pastors, if they're honest about it, realize we're really only increasing the church by shifting the sheep from one pasture to another. Are you suggesting then that you're starting to see a trend away from that and more back toward genuine discipleship, genuine evangelism, genuine church growth? Yes, and I, I believe that um, you know the the church growth movement began with seeker sensitive and then uh, purpose driven. Uh, and, and various things that really the church growth movement has morphed and has been chastened. Uh, Bill Hybels himself, you know, uh, uh, launched a survey and, and an analysis of what was happening at his church, and he came out and said that all the problems that you decided are real, they are happening, and so this notion of um, sort of figuring out what the people can take and tailoring your sermons to it and then try to do the discipleship in some other room in the church is really not working. And so nowadays, I think that you really, knowing the size of a church doesn't tell you that much about it. Uh, As a serial interim pastor, that's what I'm seeing. Churches are very different. There's a lot of trial and error going on and that uh, a lot has been learned uh, about uh, the ineffectiveness of watering anything down. And and perhaps the, the big lesson here needs to be unlearning of what we thought were so-called experts of teaching us how to do church right and relearning the fact that all the keys that are necessary are right there in front of us. It's a little book. In fact, it's sold pretty well, I understand. If you're in the right spot, you even know the author personally. Uh, the book, of course, is called The Bible. Another one that I might recommend, uh, secondary to that, that's not a bad one either, particularly on this topic, is the one written by Dr. Mark Devine, Replants, How a Dying Church Can Grow Again. And uh, we appreciate the insights into this uh, very complicated topic. And uh, Dr. Devine, hopefully we can persuade you to come back for more and we can dive a little bit deeper. And uh, again, our thanks to Dr. Mark Devine of the book, by the way, available through David C. Cook Publications or at uh, the usual suspects, including Amazon.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. The nation that for those of us that perhaps are over, over 50 wonder what's happened to our country and uh, wanting to at one level engage in the fight to make America a Christian nation again. And yet, on the other hand, maybe being compelled to ask an even more important question, and that is, how can we, right where we live and work and play and engage, do a better job of engaging the culture all around us? There was a time in an age when you had to get on an airplane with a passport and travel to another part of the world to engage in the mission field. And today, the mission field is literally right out your front door, almost anywhere you live in America, and certainly anywhere in the San Francisco Bay Area. So what of this idea of living missionally right where you live today? Well, we've invited Jim Ramsey, the Vice President of Mission Ministries at the Mission Society, to join us with some insights uh, to that very question. And Jim, a delight to have you on the program. It's good to be here. First, I'm curious about your own journey. You left high-tech for the mission field. I understand you and your family spent uh, 10 years as missionaries in Kazakhstan, and that's uh, that's quite a transition. 
Yes, it was. Um, we we felt called to mission from from an earlier age, but it wasn't like a, a major, you know, sudden surprise to us. We always knew we wanted to serve, but the Lord had provided the IT work as something I could do while I was preparing, working through seminary, and we were starting our family. But it was a change. We uh, were in our early 30s when we when we moved from uh, small town Kentucky to a city in Central Asia, in the country of Kazakhstan and served there for 10 years. And, of course, now you're here uh, back in the U.S. and serving as vice president of uh, Mission Ministries with the Mission Society, as we mentioned. And uh, your your background, I think, as a missionary qualifies you in many ways, uh, Jim, uniquely to help us better understand and address this question because, as I suggested, it wasn't that many generations ago when engaging in missions work to other people and cultures and society in places that were very different of us meant getting a passport, hopping on an airplane, and heading overseas, and today that largely means getting up and going to work in the morning, doesn't it? No doubt. I think that, uh, that missions has really become from everywhere to everywhere, and that people can, can be involved in mission wherever they are, and I think uh, in some ways that's a positive. We still will always be people who will get on a plane and go, because uh, there's some places in the world that will never hear the gospel if somebody doesn't do that, because there's nobody around. But having said that, uh, we all know, I, I think you'd have to be in a cocoon uh, to not realize there are incredible needs and opportunities for sharing the gospel here in our own home country. Let's talk about attitudes concerning that very issue. I mean, there is a certain notion that believers have that we, we should live in such a fashion as we, we share our faith, we share the evangel or the, or the gospel with others. Uh, and yet, at least through the decade of the, the 80s and 90s, and, and maybe even to a certain degree today, um, a lot of uh, Christians um, do a good job at expressing our frustration over what we see going on in our culture and society today. Uh, you witnessed the news story that I shared um, at the top of the segment here. Uh, and we do a good job at that, and yet um, maybe our experience or our, our capacity to share our frustration is better honed than our capacity to actually share our faith. And again, at the end of the day, the question is, which of the two will have the greater impact on society around us, sharing our frustration or sharing our faith? I think you really hit on the, the crucial issue that I think the American church and the evangelical church in particular really is facing. I shared a story uh, in an article I wrote recently that, that really points this out. It was some years ago. We were still in Kazakhstan serving, and I had a, a friend who was on the faculty of a, of a small liberal arts college in the East here. And it was a college with a great Christian tradition, but like so many colleges, it had kind of wandered from that tradition in the, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And he asked this question of me. They were about to engage some policies that were, were clearly in opposition to the biblical understanding of the faith. And, uh, and he was kind of fighting the policies and just getting really frustrated and, and feeling like he was fighting a losing battle. And he asked me this question. He said, I'm wondering if, if my mistake is trying to maintain the Christian identity of this institution or so I learn what is it to live missionally in a non-Christian institution. And he was talking to me because as a missionary, he said, maybe I should have more of the thought of a missionary who doesn't expect the host culture to be Christian than to kind of try to fight for that. And I think that's the, the key question that, that we are faced as believers in this culture is, is which are we going to fight to maintain the culture 
or are we going to live missionally to invite people into a different uh, way of living? Well, certainly the mentality for many, many years, and we've seen this articulated at, at a national level, I mean, historically by the likes of, of a Jerry Falwell or the likes of a Pat Robertson and others, and that is that we there's a degree to which we have to fight to maintain the culture. Certainly that notion of being um, salt and light uh, makes sense at a degree, but I wonder if there's also a great degree, Jim, to which we kind of longingly look back toward a different time in America where we perceived it to be a Christian nation when, in fact, that's never really been entirely an, an accurate moniker for our country. And so it's almost as if we're, we're fighting to maintain something that, in the truest form, never really truly existed in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I have to ask that question. I know it, it's it's not always popular to, to question that, but you think about that we sometimes do pine for the great years of the 50s when we were a Christian country, and yet if you look at some of the things that were in place and the rules, some of the treatment of people in our country in the 1950s, I think all would agree it was far from Christian, um, especially we look at some of the, the racial issues going on in our country at the time. So I think we, we sometimes have some selective memory. I, I don't mean to imply, therefore, there have been huge challenges, and certainly the the Christian faith has fallen out of favor with the dominant culture. Uh, but I think sometimes in our in our memory, or our, our selective memory, uh, we kind of pine for the yesteryear, and I, I really question, is that is that what God would have us do, or is he looking for us to forge what does it look like to be a Christian in today's context rather than trying to recreate yesterday's context? And is that maybe because it's just easier to fall back to that position? There's a lot less uh, demanded of us in doing so. I mean, let's face it, we'll, we'll talk to any generation and talk about the good old days and say, well, the, the good old days. Are we talking about the good old days of the Cold War in the 1980s? Would that be the good old days of the Vietnam War in the 1970s? Would it be the good old days of, of uh, the, the spread of communism and, and enslaving the people throughout Europe in the 1950s, the good old days of, of the 1940s during the Second World War? Which phase of the good old days are we referring to? So it, it seems as if you're right. It's not only very selective memory, but sometimes maybe just simply an easier way to kind of default back to, because if mm-hmm. we can just um, vent our frustration over how things have changed, it really doesn't call upon us then to be engaged in the culture, to challenge the culture, to love the culture, to live, as you suggest, in a missional fashion, which means to understand that first and foremost, it is our job to be Christ's representatives on earth. And let's face it, there's a lot more work involved in doing that than just sitting back and complaining. I think so. And and, uh, one of my colleagues, Stan Self, uh, wrote recently, I I love this quote, he says, when we as evangelicals are so disheartened over the state of the Church in America, what are we bemoaning? Do we mourn the loss of Orthodox gospel preaching? Or do we mourn the loss of our privileged place in society? Hmm. And I think that's that's a hard question, but I think we need to ask honestly, what what are we upset about? Um, are we really upset about the true teachings of Christianity and the transformation that the gospel brings? Or are we frustrated because the the kind of position of being the dominant um, the dominant understanding of the culture that being Christian was a culturally good and acceptable thing is that is that really what we're we're losing that that means there's a higher cost of the faith than maybe we we did sense 30 or 40 years ago 
Yeah, probably very true. And along with that, I think, uh, coincides this notion that, let's face it, missional living in a very unchristian or hostile environment, uh, and, and certainly Christians in China understand this, Christians in the Sudan, as we speak, understand what this is like, it comes at a higher cost. And so you're right. The question is, when we talk about paying the price, is the paying the price because we're being inconvenienced, or do we understand that our very faith itself requires us to pay a price, that there is a price for being counted amongst those that name Jesus as Lord and Savior. So maybe it's a good point for us to pause and engage in some introspection. You know, I use the Bruce Jenner story is kind of a jumping off point because everybody's been talking about it around the water cooler over the last 24 hours and many bemoaning this this direction in which society seems to be headed and yet there is a bigger question here that remains unanswered for believers and that is um, do we long for the days of the Christian culture or are we willing to influence the world around us uh, to understand what it really means to live out our faith missionally in a non-Christian environment. Our conversation today with Jim Ramsey, Vice President of Mission Ministries. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our visit as this edition of Lifeline continues.